But what they don't always understand really well are, you know, why aren't people coming into health clinics regularly? Why do people share beliefs and practice norms that prevent them from accessing certain vaccines or medicines? Why haven't they changed their behavior around certain sanitation and hygiene practices despite decades of messaging and Um, So those are the kinds of like really sticky, complex challenges that I think we really seek to address in sub-Saharan Africa. Welcome to Inside Out, the podcast about badass millennials living out their dreams and how they got there. I'm your host, Jane Z. All right, today's episode is audio only as we had some issues with Carly's video, but like we mentioned at the end, there may be a part two to this. So if you're lucky, you might just see Carly's lovely face one of these days. Today's guest is a total badass bee. Carly James is a friend I met in grad school where we both did the Master of Design Studies program at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. It's a super niche research program, like a mini PhD, where you focus on a particular spatial question you're interested in. And when I say spatial, I mean architectural, urban, or landscape related. Carly is trained as a cultural anthropologist. She's been working as a design researcher for Think Place Global, a strategic design firm based in Australia that's focused on international development and aid. So I'm looking at Carly's bio on the Think Place website and oh my gosh, you want to hear some of her projects? All right, brace yourself. So Carly's worked on behavior change in the health system for Somali women, disaster resilience in Myanmar, HIV testing in West Africa, and co-designing the future state of male contraceptives. We will definitely have to get an update from her on the results of that last project. But doesn't her life sound so important and colorful. She's done some really amazing stuff. Beyond how cool Carly is at work, she is humble AF and sweet as pie. She grew up in Alabama, so she's got that southern charm with the cosmopolitan vibe of having lived in Montreal, Australia, and sub-Saharan Africa. Carly's got so much love and wisdom to give to the world, and I'm really excited for you to hear this, so I hope you enjoy this episode. So I'd love to start with your upbringing in Alabama. Um, We've talked a little bit before about your identity and how it ties or doesn't tie into the South. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in North Alabama in a city called Huntsville. Um, There's a NASA branch there, a military base, a university, a massive aerospace industry related, of course, to the NASA branch. So It's the kind of thing where I think my experience of the South and of Alabama is quite different than probably most people's perception. I think Huntsville has a pretty transient population. It's a a lot of families there come from different parts of the U.S. or different parts of the world. Um, Big emphasis on tertiary education. My parents are Midwestern transplants. So in a lot of ways, I think I grew up just not feeling Southern and not really identifying as Alabamian in the same sense, maybe as some of my friends. Do you think you were exposed much to the more traditional and religious parts of Alabama? Um, I, I was raised Catholic, and but I, I think probably where a lot of that came to light was when I, I'll say reluctantly, uh, went to undergraduate studies at at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa is the first time I think I was around so many people from different parts of the South um, and who had different accents than me and who had different belief systems than me and different values and who came from generations and generations of Southerners. And I think that was sort of when I sort of had this awakening around some of the legacy and history of the South. You know, you're exposed to a really intense college football culture, which really funded a lot of the resources I was fortunate to to use. Um, It's a really deeply entrenched sorority and fraternity culture, which has a direct influence on state politics and local politics. It's a really interesting place. And I, I worked a lot in some of the lower income and, um, more economically depressed communities in the surrounding counties um, while I was at University of Alabama. And I think that's when I started kind of getting interested in more of that agricultural history and and looking outside of the U.S. as well, where some of these analogous contexts where these 
inequalities and really structural inequalities exist. What kind of work did you do? So I was uh, leading up a program, well, founded a program um, and then was was managing it um, where we would go into certain economically depressed areas and go into public and private schools in those areas and basically run extracurricular courses on international relations and international politics. And what I realized is there was a huge kind of racial divide between the public and private schools that was just clear as day. So you go to the public school and you kind of had to recalibrate your curriculum and your teaching because it was a population that most likely wasn't super engaged in, you know, international relations or sort of international affairs, had not traveled much outside the county, let alone outside of the country. The private school was quite different, predominantly white population, um, very religious um, culture at the school, and really an emphasis on sort of making it. Um, and getting out of the county. And so they were quite aware of a lot of the things that we wanted to engage with them on. So I I think that was a really transformative experience for me of learning about those realities that can exist. And literally the schools were like blocks away from each other. And did that work experience, did that tie in at all to your interest in anthropology? Yeah, I think so. I I, I think I uh, really kind of felt like it was a privilege to be able to enter a space that I wasn't a participant of, if that makes sense, or a, um, sometimes anthropologists say a member of. I I was I felt like it was kind of a really humbling experience to be part of settings and contexts that I you know wasn't from or you know didn't subscribe to. And just sort of be a bit of that participant, but also that observer as well, and really trying to see what I could learn as an outsider. I think those aha moments we come to as outsiders are obviously quite different than those aha moments that we come to as insiders, if you can think of it that way. And so, yeah, I just became kind of relentlessly curious and really thriving on that that discomfort, I guess, that comes with that. I mean, there's definitely so much value that comes with a fresh set of eyes, right? Yeah. What drew you to anthropology? Because when you had mentioned you were pre-med at one point and then pivoted from there. Yeah, so I was pre-med, and um, which is so laughable to think about now. <laughs> but I, I remember sitting in my biology classes and my math classes and just thinking, well, this really isn't playing to my strengths. Um I'm, I'm, I'm not really (laughs) thriving in this environment. So I did what I thought was a pretty lateral move and moved over to biological and medical anthropology. And I became really interested in the social determinants of health, especially in a place like the U S where you've got such a diverse population, you've got a really fractured healthcare system and people come into that healthcare system from a variety of different backgrounds and experiences and privileges and these sorts of things. And that really does have a deterministic effect a lot of the times on our access to healthcare and our own personal health. So um, those trajectories and the human condition more broadly is something I became really interested in. And ultimately that led me to cultural anthropology where, you know, I was just fascinated by the idea of language and social structures and ideas and values and norms and habits and practices and all of these things that comprise our social life as humans, I was so fascinated by how variable that was at a global scale. When I first learned about anthropology, I was kind of introduced to it through this course called Nature and Culture, where we studied actually different Polynesian uh, cultures in the Pacific Islands or the Marshall Islands in the Pacific. One framework that I'm not sure if it was from that class, but someone explained it as like, you know, sociology is looking at the large scale patterns and like, you know, what are the big patterns you see in society versus anthropology is picking out single data points that are often the outliers and digging deep into those to really understand the full picture. Does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, like I said, there's definitely, uh, it's a privileged position to kind of be in and out at the exact same time, it's also really humbling. But I think picking out the outliers is a good point. I think it's sometimes it's easier as an outsider to see what's missing or where there might be gaps. But yeah, I think one thing I found with anthropology to your to your story about, you know, studying sort of the Polynesian cultures and things is that 
there was this long legacy of predominantly European white men in these tenured positions who would go out and sort of live in these really remote locations. And um, it was almost this linear scale of what's exotic and what's not. And uh, trying to choose sort of these most, the most remote and exotic places. And I think for me, I felt like I could enter that space really sincerely um, and try to try to introduce a different voice and try to introduce a different perspective and also try to see anthropology as taking kind of delight and like marveling at the things that people find otherwise mundane or kind of quotidian about the way they live their lives. And so that comes up in, you know, ride on the subway that can come up in like your travel to Paris that can come up in you heading to the mall in Nashville for the day. Um, I, I just feel like it's, uh, I wanted to kind of understand what a broader interpretation, I guess, of anthropology. Yeah, that's a good segue into your travels and adventures after Alabama. Where did you end up going after university? So right out of uh, undergrad, I started in the AmeriCorps program. At at this point, I was already interested. I had traveled to Ghana, um, and I was very interested in East and West Africa specifically, um, and this notion of economic development and inequality. The AmeriCorps program I started in was in Delaware, and I was working for the government there in their economic development office. Their focus at the time was really on the revitalization of like downtowns, historic downtowns, and bringing in small business and really kind of stimulating local development. One thread within that was um, sort of the food justice, we called it, or um, the idea of like more localized forms of production of food and how that influenced people's people's health in different parts of Delaware. So that was really interesting for me. Um, I spent a year there, and then I went up to McGill, where you and I never crossed paths, but <laughs> we we're both uh, McGill alums. We just were passing ships in the night. Um, yeah. But I spent two years in Montreal there, yeah, studying uh, sociocultural anthropology. It's so funny. We definitely overlapped your two years there, but somehow <laughs> we probably even saw each other at the library. Or I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Midnight Kitchen. Oh my God. Yes. Best vegan lunch. But yeah, I didn't even know about your early travel experience to Ghana and then all the kind of, I guess, urban development projects in Delaware. That's so cool. Can you talk yeah. a bit more about that first trip to Ghana? Yeah. Um, so I, I was a in my senior year and I was really thinking I'd want to go into international aid or international development. At the time, my only thought process was, well, there's the UN and then there's organizations like Oxfam and CARE. Like that was all that was on my radar. And I um, decided, well, the trajectory for that is usually Peace Corps or, you know, becoming a diplomat or, um, a Fulbright was another one. So I was really interested to apply for Fulbright. And um, I decided I would do one in Ghana. There was a professor on campus who was Ghanaian, and we got to building um, a good working relationship around certain topics that he was interested in researching on. Um, and so I was going to support him basically in that um, and be in residence at a university in Ghana. So I decided to go over and strengthen my application, build some relationships and um, didn't end up winning the Fulbright at all. But I think I, I remember I basically just skipped classes and I told my parents that I was going. They were terrified. <laughs> I hadn't um, really been anywhere um, outside of Europe or Australia at that point. And I was... Um, I had no idea what to expect. I think someone was meeting me at the airport and that was pretty much all I had uh, planned. So um, yeah, looking back on it, it was a pretty bold thing to do. But um, yeah, I was really proud of it. I think I learned a lot about how to enter that space really consciously. Um, and by that space, I mean a foreigner coming into Sub-Saharan Africa, broadly speaking. What did you learn about that? I'm curious. Yeah, it, it's another thing that was reinforced, I think, when I started working in Kenya and when I lived in Kenya for my research at McGill. But this idea that 
you're never going to have all of the information of what's going on around you. You're always operating in this kind of space of incomplete knowledge. Um, and that's probably, that probably goes for anywhere you're, you might travel to that that's not your own or that you don't know well. But I think particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, you're a minority. It's very obvious you're not from that place. So I think there's a certain uh, visibility that comes with that. And therefore you have this kind of heightened awareness of yourself and what you're saying, what you're doing. I just felt like I was constantly in this state of problem solving without all of the information. And so it's a really humbling kind of experience. Um, And you quickly learn that, you know, you have to be in a, in a mindset of learning um, because you have so, so far to go. Okay. What was your impression of Montreal? To me, Montreal is like the super magical place in my heart where I became Mm -hmm. an adult and Mm -hmm. learned all these things. But what was it like for you? It's such a great place to be young in, if I can say that. There's just a lot going on. It's the most, one of the most liberal and progressive places I had been at the time. I mean, I had mostly spent time in the South, um, and working on, you know, rural development initiatives and things like that in Delaware. So to come to Montreal, there was kind of this, you know, liberating feeling. Um, it's, it's got such a vibrant, like arts and culture scene, the music's incredible. I think operating bilingually was, was really attractive to me. Yeah. I just felt like my mind was expanded. Cause you also speak French, right? Yeah. So I started studying it at at the University of Alabama, and I, I just became really intrigued in, in the sort of French history of colonialism, particularly in West Africa, and um, that really influenced the, the end of my time at, at Alabama and what I was studying there, and then was part of my application, I think, to Montreal, um, to McGill. Um, at one point, you ended up in Australia. Yeah, so at the end of my time at McGill, I, I had been interviewing for PhD programs, and I thought that was kind of the plan, is I would stay mm-hmm. on the straight and narrow and become, you know, solidly in the academic sphere in anthropology. But I was also kind of open to other options. I, I was being told in those interviews that on average, I'd be spending six to eight years um, completing a PhD. Oh I was about, God. I had made a commitment to myself to not go into debt for my education. And that was about to change dramatically if I had accepted those positions and things. So, um, you know, let's just say my ears were open to other things and I had cross paths. I was really fortunate to cross paths with, um, uh, a friend of mine named Lydia who had worked for Think Place at the time in Kenya she uh, was telling me about this thing called design thinking and human-centered design, and I had no idea what she was talking about. Um, but I think the human-centered part was appealing because I thought, okay, there's a literal connection uh, between what I've been doing and what what she seems to be doing. Um, and I had, you know, it's been some time in Kenya. I was intrigued by the context. I was really, you know, hoping to continue a relationship with with the country and and, and you know continue to travel there and work there. Um, so we got to talking and by the end of it, she was kind of laughing to me and saying, well, Hey, you wouldn't be interested in an unpaid internship across the world. Would you? I was like, actually I'm listening. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so, you know, I had a master's degree and I was ready to fly across the world to Australia where Think Place was founded. Uh, their, their work in Kenya wasn't advanced enough to take me on at the time. So they wanted to sort of place me in Australia first. And I was really being advised against it by everyone close to me. They thought, you know, why, why do this sort of thing? You're selling yourself short. You also don't even know you don't even fully understand what this company does. Um, and you're taking a big risk. Um, but it felt like the right thing. I think sometimes in life, you feel like you have this kind of graceful exit from one chapter, but you don't really know what the next chapter is. And I just felt like something was pushing me into that direction. And so, so I went for it. And I, it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. I feel like when it comes to career steps, I think we're all encouraged to like see our moves as like these clean things. Like you have a job at this company and then you go and get a degree here and then you level up and do this other thing. But most of the close friends um, I talk to about this kind of stuff who 
are creative and, you know, have a lot of ideas tend to have really messy careers. And it's not until afterwards, you know, in hindsight that you piece together the puzzle and it's like, oh yeah, this all made sense because I'm interested in X, Y, Z. For you, even while you were at ThinkPlace, at one point you decided to go and get a second master's. And that's how we met is eventually at Harvard through the Master of Design Studies program. What drew you to that program and to Harvard? When I was uh, coming to the end of my time in Montreal and felt like, well, this is the right next step, I obviously went for it. But again, I was I was an intern. I think I was paid some small stipend for like transportation and stuff like that. And I felt like in a way I was starting over, but I was really intrigued by um, this kind of emergent space that I didn't know very well. I, I had thought I'd be working in international aid, international development, or doing at least research in that space from an anthropological standpoint. But then I was suddenly thrown into this consulting context. ThinkPlace is a strategic design and innovation firm. We obviously practice design thinking, human-centered design, but specifically for complex systems. And I had no idea what any of that meant. <laughs> um, but again, like I said, I came in with this identity as a researcher and I thought I had value to add. Um, and I was really attracted to the idea of a design process where they placed a big emphasis on the problem and really defining the problem. And that's kind of where the research came in. And then we could immediately apply what we learned in the research to designing a solution that met the needs of the people that we were designing for. So that w- that whole process was really fulfilling and really satisfying for me. And I think to the to that time, I, I had been sort of writing journal articles and publishing chapters and these sorts of things that I felt like weren't really going to affect change in the same way. So I, I think I came into Think Place and suddenly it's like that moment you feel like you found your tribe, like that, that is how I felt. Um, so I caught the bug, I think, in design and really wasn't going to go back for another master's that was kind of out of the question. I thought if I ever went back, like you said, it would be for a PhD or something. But I found this program, it was um, called Design Studies and Design Research. I was really attracted to the idea of of being at a design school. Um, Obviously, Harvard had been this kind of faraway concept and this really (laughs) um, attractive and prestigious um, faraway concept um, that I had built up in my head. And I thought there's no way I'm qualified uh, to get into this program. But I learned that uh, there was a sociologist working at the design school at Harvard named Dr. Diane Davis. And I applied to work directly with her because I thought if there's a sociologist working there, there's clearly some linkages um, and I really want to kind of pull on those threads. So that is how that story happened. And I was so fortunate to get in and I thought, well, I can't say no. And everything else kind of flew out the window. And I um, decided to maintain my relationship with ThinkPlace. I stayed on for a day a week and was, was still working. And then I picked on I picked up two or three extra jobs while I was at Harvard. So at any given point, the whole time, I was on campus. I, I think I was working three jobs. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah, which was, which was <laughs> a lot. Um, and I felt like I was just barely, you know, getting by. And on top of that, you and I have talked about this, Jane, but I feel like, you know, my entry into design was really applied, right? It was really practical. And I felt like coming into Harvard, there was quite an emphasis on theory, um, there's quite an established program in architecture um, and urban design. And I just kind of felt like a black sheep. And um, I felt like there wasn't a space to have the kind of conversations I wanted to have. Um, it's quite a conservative pedagogy as well. So I felt like I would sort of raise current issues and current affairs and try to kind of emphasize relevance, you know, and and I felt like I wasn't alone in that, but it didn't, there didn't seem to be a sort of common narrative around that um, at Harvard. So I really ended up spending most of my time at the business school or across across the river or um, at the Kennedy School of Government or at MIT where we were able to transfer and take courses. So that was kind of my experience. And obviously, you know, the, the rest of the story, which is I ended up going to Kenya partway through um, because of that. Yeah, um, the Harvard thing too, we've talked a bit about um, that there's 
so much prestige, but also this kind of sparkle around just the idea of going to Harvard. And obviously, you know, the everyone's super smart and driven and there for usually something very specific that they've thought a lot about. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's such a cool environment to be in. What did you kind of realize about, you know, being there versus the maybe like the branding or prestige? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I think it really cuts it like the heart gets at the heart of my whole Harvard experience, which is that I had grown up with this notion of my parents had convinced me like go to an undergrad in Alabama and really kind of solidify what you want to be doing because you out of a lot of the people we know, you are committed to going to graduate school. That's something you've always wanted to do. You want to be an academic, these sorts of things. So, so that was kind of the plan. And so as when you kind of have that in mind, you think of, well, what's, what's the pinnacle? You think of the Ivy League, you think of places like Harvard, Cambridge, Oxford. And so Harvard had, like I said, been this kind of thing I had built up in my head. And I was so, so blown back by the fact that I was admitted. <laughs> um, I look back on it now. And for a design grad school, we had to submit a portfolio. And at the time I was like, I don't have a portfolio. I haven't done like what? And I remember putting that thing together and just like having so little faith in it, um, which is, which is terrible to, to think about now. Um, but I, but I'm so proud of that experience. I have it. I had at Harvard and meeting people like you and people in our program who our program was so small, but everyone came from such diverse backgrounds. And I was just fascinated to hear about everyone's stories and their journeys to this place that we found ourselves in. But I, I, I think I also had like a bit of a, a maturity moment and sort of, you know, a disenchantment as well with the, the idea of Harvard and then the reality of it for me. Um, at that point, I kind of knew I wanted to continue working at ThinkPlace. I knew that I was attracted to the idea of continuing my work in Kenya and ThinkPlace was starting to do more projects there. And I felt like I wasn't, you know, I was getting getting sold this bill of goods around, you know, a really practical kind of research-driven field-focused um, program. And I felt like there just weren't the resources and the support um, to really deliver on that vision. And so for me, it was kind of this real important moment of realizing that my Harvard experience wasn't this glittery, shiny, perfect thing. And that's okay. And I thought that was one of the greatest lessons of my life. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like there were a ton of push and pull factors for you to ultimately make that decision. And, you know, you had no shortage of voices telling you like reasons to stay at Harvard. I don't think I've ever said this, but I really commend you for making that decision. As much as we missed you that second year, it was, it, we, we definitely, there was like a hole in our MDAS program. It was like, where's Carly? Um, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> but I think, you know, you said it yourself, like there was, you know, there's concrete projects waiting for you in Kenya. You had this momentum going from working at Think Place and it just made sense. And plus you had a long distance relationship to rekindle. <laughs> I did. So that was one of, one of the pulls, of course. Um, I had started seeing uh, someone named Dean, who's now my fiance. Uh, when I, as I was leaving, um, as I was leaving Australia, he's Australian and had been working at Think Place. We met at work um, and he had been offered the role of going over to Kenya sight unseen. I mean, I think he had heard me talk about Kenya, but it was kind of this nebulous thing to him at the time. Um, but s- somehow um, the stars stars aligned and he was offered the role of going over and kind of bolstering up that business and really accelerating it. Like I said, they, they had a few projects there, um, but they really wanted to kind of, they needed a multiplier. And so, you know, he took the role. And so that was part of the appeal of going, but I think too, it's important to state that it wasn't like, Oh, she's too good for Harvard because I think it's actually the opposite. I kind of had this moment where I'm like, I need to be genuine to what I'm doing and what I care about. And I feel like staying at Harvard just for the name of Harvard and just to network maybe isn't the right thing for me and isn't in line with maybe what my core values are. 
and it's really that idea of like, well, she's too good, too good for this was the narrative I was getting from faculty. When I asked, they thought, well, what are you thinking? Like, why would you leave? Like this program is meant to be in residence and you gain so much of the Harvard experience by being here and being present and mingling with these, these people. And, um, you know, the courses are here the faculty's here and, you know, what are you thinking? But I thought, you know, I really want to do my research on a certain topic in a certain context. And I feel like I can figure out a way to do that, whether or not you guys want to support me (laughs) formally to do that. And so my thesis ended up being focused on some research I conducted in Kenya. And I set up a few independent studies so I could finish all my coursework remotely. And then I obviously came back to walk with you guys in, Mm -hmm. um, in Boston. So I, I felt like it all, it all worked out really, really well. I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. Oh yeah, you did it. (laughs) We did it. (laughs) We did it. Let's talk a bit about your work in Kenya and in Africa. I'd love to hear about some of the projects that maybe you're most proud of, or you feel like had the biggest impact. Yeah, sure. So um, like I mentioned, ThinkPlace is a strategic design and innovation firm. We um, do what's called design thinking or human-centered design, and we specifically do it to transform complex systems. Um, now, what the hell does that mean? Um, if you just think about we, how many systems we interact with throughout the course of our day or our lives, you know, we've got, we just mentioned the education system, let's say the health system we weave in and out of throughout our lives, our transportation system. If you think of a system like that, each of the elements of that system has been designed, right? The, the cars, the, the landscaping, the roads, the speculations of specifications of a sidewalk or what have you. Um, but the aggregate experience of those systems sometimes is pretty crap. <laughs> and um, that's kind of the sweet spot uh, for us at, at ThinkPlace, if, if that makes any sense. Um, you know, I think there's this notion that we all design. We really believe that. Anyone who's imagined something, who's imagined an alternative reality has and then made it and created it and produced it and brought it into the world, that is design. So whether consciously or unconsciously, I think we all design to some extent. And a lot of the design process that we see in the world is really inside out. So it's like, you know, a mechanical engineer sits down based on their expertise and designs and produces or helps to produce, you know, let's say a bridge or something like this, or, um, but now we're seeing kind of an appetite for something that's more outside in. So, you know, we live and breathe this principle at ThinkPlace that those who you're designing for should be those you're designing with. If I'm going to design, for lack of a better example, I don't know, a laptop, I want to speak to the people who are already using what's on the market in terms of laptops. What are they using how are they using them every day? What are the different use cases? What are their challenges? What are their needs? Um, whether they can articulate those or not. And that's where research comes in. Sometimes it's hard for us to really be explicit about what we need or what our demands are. Um, so that's where some of that observational participant observation kind of research comes in that, that I was so attracted to when I came to Think Place. Um, and then that tells us a bit of a story. It tells us what we need to design and how we need to design it. And so we then get to immediately apply that into, say, a solution. So that's kind of generally what we do at ThinkPlace. I know that was a bit long-winded, but I think that is the philosophy and that looks different in the government of Australia than it does in, say, the health clinics of Mozambique. I can give an example maybe of what we did in Kenya. I'll just start by giving a bit of an overview of the international aid and development space. I think when we think of that, Some people kind of think of the humanitarian space. They think of like emergency response and conflict response. Some people think of just building schools or that sort of thing. It's a really interesting sector or space or industry. I mean, it's it's thought about and conceptualized in a lot of different ways. But I think it's a it's a place where organizations are really good at giving and channeling, right? They take things in, they push things out, they've been doing certain things really well for decades. So they just keep getting money from, say, the U.S. government or the U.K. government or people like the Gates Foundation. Um, They just keep getting money to kind of do certain things that they know they're already really good at. So that might be um, 
stocking pharmacies with the right medicines to help save lives. It might be training healthcare workers um, to deliver newborns in a safe way. It might be, um, you know, how to promote certain um, behavioral change that, that helps bring about behavior change to prevent malaria or address sanitation, all of these different things. And that's kind of what we know as impact. Um, you hear that word a lot in this space, impact. And so they, they know what they do well and they get funding to repeatedly do those things well. But what they don't always understand really well and what they don't know well are, you know, why aren't people coming into health clinics regularly? There's this um, kind of, a, a, people are quite averse to this notion of preventative healthcare. Why do people share beliefs in practice norms that prevent them from accessing certain vaccines or medicines? Why haven't they changed their behavior around certain sanitation and hygiene practices despite decades of, you know, um, messaging and, and things around this? Um, so those are the kinds of like really sticky, complex challenges that I think we really seek to address at Think Place in Sub-Saharan Africa. So I'll give you one example. One I think was really um, powerful for me personally was the work we did in Somalia and Somaliland. So Somaliland being this semi-autonomous region in the north, um, but for simplicity, I'll just refer to it as Somalia. People probably don't often think about Somalia, but if they do, I'm sure, you know, these, this visual comes to mind of it being embroiled in this cycle of drought and conflict and famine, which it has been for decades. It's been called one of the worst places in the world to be a woman behind only Afghanistan. And it has one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the world. This is due to a bunch of different reasons, um, some of them sort of socio cultural and religious norms that um, influence, you know, how women treat their bodies or perceive their bodies. It has something to do with how they lack access to certain healthcare services and essential services. It has lots of um, different reasons to do with um, gender norms and how um, men do or don't support their women's you know, journey through the healthcare system, all these sorts of things. So we were asked, ThinkPlace was engaged to tackle a, a couple of different problems. So one of them was that antenatal care, ANC attendance was really, really low um, and they couldn't figure out why. So what we were seeing is a lot of women were coming in for their first appointment and they're required to come in for at least four throughout the course of their pregnancy, but they'd come in for at least one initially to confirm their pregnancy so they could tell their husbands and their families, and then they wouldn't come back. And uh, we were also seeing that not a lot of women were delivering their babies in a health facility. So instead they were delivering at home with uh, what, what are called traditional birth attendants, which is a pretty broad category, but basically people who are not formally trained and relatively unskilled um, kind of in a more formal sense, but people who, you know, their grandmothers and mothers have worked with and who they trust um, to help them through the delivery experience at home, but who often don't have the right equipment or um, pose a lot of risks to the woman. So we worked closely with Population Services International, PSI, to try to look at these challenges. Um, we had come in at a time where they had already conducted a bit of research. And so what we did was basically develop a set of concepts. Um, so not quite what designers would call prototypes, like more tangible things, but, but more kind of concepts um, that we could then go out and validate. And that became kind of a form of research for us. One of the things we realized through, through doing that was that health clinics were seen as kind of a woman's space um, exclusively to men, um, which makes sense, I suppose. It's a place where they take their newborns to get checkups. It's a place where they come and maybe get get access to certain, you know, medicines and things during pregnancy. Um, but in this, you know, highly socially conservative context, it meant that women really, you know, needed their husband's support in order to go to the clinic, which didn't always happen um, because they were, you know, the, the idea of them going to the clinic was outright ignored or they felt like it was a trade-off between caring for the kids in the home and, and going to the healthcare clinic. So that's something we wanted to tackle. And um, the other thing 
that we learned is that there's a whole host, like I said, of religious and cultural norms around women's bodies and women's role in the family that often lead to them having kind of unsafe or risky pregnancies. So I won't get into graphic details, but female genital mutilation is a big one, which some people may know about, but obviously has a massive influence on especially the first birth. So we ended up developing over 14 different concepts and then turned those into prototypes. And when I say prototypes, we just mean a sort of really rough interpretation of a final solution, something kind of low risk, low cost that we could somehow test and track and measure and see, hey, is this thing going to work? Is it showing promise based on a set of criteria? And then we'd either kind of can it and kill it, or we would advance it and, and try to build it out as then a final solution that we could package up with a few other solutions. And then that would ultimately get implemented and, and scaled across the health system in Somalia. So a couple of those prototypes, just as an example, would like one was we had a we ran a campaign where if you brought a friend in with you to the healthcare clinic, um, you would get priority service. Um, that was very, very successful. Um because the idea is they'd usually go over to their friend's house to get childcare or something like this. But if they could both come in and we could provide them with childcare at the clinic, then you'd kind of kill two birds with one stone. Another idea we had was around um, bracelets. So the women there don't, don't wear a lot of jewelry, but in the markets, we saw that there was quite a bit of jewelry and kind of beads for bracelets and things like that. So the idea was that you'd have a kind of a wearable display um, of a bead that signified each time you came, for, came to an ANC appointment. And then you get a special bead that signified like your delivery at the clinic as well. Cause that's the ultimate goal is try, try to take them on the journey from ANC to safe delivery at the clinic. Um, and they could continue this with all their children. So Somalis have very large families. And so the idea of kind of th- they're so proud of their children. And so having like a wearable display of, of healthy kids um, was really attracted to them as well. So unfortunately we had to disengage before seeing the implementation and scaling of the prototypes, but, um, that's kind of where we left off and it, it's something we're really proud of and definitely a context that's really, really complex and really, really fascinating. One thing I am observing just through talking to you and, and kind of knowing you as a person is just how deeply invested you are in your work and the people and the communities that you work with. Um, I think that's something really, really special that you bring to the world and the work that you do. I hope listeners are as inspired by you as I am. I guess the last area I want to ask you about is more around like your working process and specifically, you know, getting to work with your fiance, with Dean, there's this like ongoing debate of like, should you work with your partner or not? Or should you work with a close friend? And I think it's really like case by case, but for you, what would you say are like the highs and lows of working with Dean? And, and I guess any advice you would give to listeners on working with a partner Yeah. I mean, first I want to say thank you for the kind words. I I definitely feel this imperative and I think it comes from my parents both grew up below the poverty line. And I I don't know, I've always felt the sense of like wanting to do more and it's probably a very American mindset as well. But, um, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm so deeply invested in the work that I do and I feel really fortunate to be working in like a very values driven atmosphere where I can wake up every day and think like, all right, well, I, I feel like there's some theory of real change happening here and I'm happy to be a part of it. I feel really lucky. So working with your partner, (laughs) I, I don't have all the answers, certainly, right. We only have our own lived experiences, but, and and I'm happy to speak to that, but I do want to put a call out for any of the listeners. If someone else is in a similar position of working with their partner, I'd love to start a bit of like a thought circle or whatever we want to call it. But, um, kind of share stories and share lessons learned. I'd love to write something up one day on that experience because it is really it is really special. For me, I think it's something Dean and I kind of take for granted because we met at work. We've um we both came to this from a different place. He's an industrial designer. He's he's very strong and his business acumen is quite strong and I'm sort of more of a researcher and um I like working on 
creative projects and things like this. And so we have kind of different and I think quite complementary skill sets, which really helps. But I was really nervous, in all honesty, coming into the Kenya office. And Dean was already there. He had hired a small team of people who were great. Nairobi's just this amazing, optimistic, exciting place to work. It's very cosmopolitan. I think more, more so than people probably think. It's people are always craving more, something different. There's a real sense of like people are just hustling and um, and it's a and it's an amazing place to be. And we were at a place where we were really trying to, like I said, inject a lot of energy and pace into the company there and trying to grow it really quickly. And fortunately, it's, it's, it was really successful is, is kind of the end of the story there. But, um, but I was really nervous to come into that, um, particularly as a woman who we wanted to be really transparent about our relationship. It wasn't something we were going to hide. Um, and working with your partner, I think I didn't want, you know, any sort of negative perception of the role I was getting put into. Um, I had to negotiate my salary and my role with a member of the board who wasn't Dean because of conflict of interest. And so we kind of, we had to navigate things that we hadn't had to navigate before, but on paper, you know, I was coming in quite, quite well qualified for the role, but in reality, I think I had this real imposter syndrome, um, which was compounded by the idea of, you know, I'm basically dating my boss, (laughs) um, (laughs) But uh, which is a whole other conversation to have, um, kind of the female experience of that. But um, yeah, you know, I mentioned before that like Nairobi is such an exciting, exhilarating place to work. Um, It's really taxing, though, in a way, because like I I mentioned earlier, you kind of always have this incomplete sense of knowledge about what's going on and you're trying to navigate things. Um, and we're trying to build a business year on year though. We were growing really, really quickly. We were tripling our, our staff size every year. We, um, expanded into new, a new office within the two years, the initial two years I was there. So we were really proud of what we were doing. And I think part of what helped is that Dean and I learned really quickly what each other's strengths and weaknesses are. Um, Patrick Lencioni has, uh, this book called five dysfunctions of a team And in that, he talks about trust as being absolutely fundamental. And when you have trust, um, say on a board or in a committee, on any kind of team, is only when you can have this kind of productive, useful conflict. And so trust, I think, is also the foundation of a romantic relationship. So so for us, there was something about that that translated and mapped on really, really conveniently. And I felt like we were in such an early stage of the business that we kind of had no choice but to rely on each other and to be really blunt and honest with each other when it counted. Um, And it was kind of a season of our lives where we had to bring work home. And I think when you read about couples working together, you, you know, you hear about, well, try to try to make boundaries or, you know, (laughs) try to find balance. And it's just like, it's completely unrealistic. Um, but because we were both doing work that we really cared about and we really cared about our team, I mean, we, um, Dean and I both have this kind of people centered style of management that we really subscribe to. And so it just became this, you know, this family and this team and this work that we were so highly invested in that it was so motivating for the both of us. Oh, you guys have such a beautiful thing going. I have so much more I want to ask you and maybe I'll leave like one last question for you is, well, okay. How about you choose? So one question is around imposter syndrome and Mm -hmm. ways that you've managed to overcome it. And the second is, are you living your dream? Um, Imposter syndrome. I don't know if I have a way around it. It's something we talk really openly about at Think Place because it's particularly high the rates of imposter syndrome around in in creative firms and around senior leaders and creative firms so it's something we're really open and honest about you know in the literature that they talk about psychological safety they talk about creating environments where people feel like they can voice something that might be risky or a little out of left field or might be a little wacky but that they can do so because they feel like there's no risk socially in their office to them doing so. And I think there is, there's real truth to that for the imposter syndrome. I I felt like I was thrown into the deep end. And so I was forced to just learn how to swim. 
I think you start to realize what are those aspects of my work that I have to just, I'm not very good at, but I've got got to just figure out a way to get good at it. Um, And then what are those aspects of my work that I want to personalize that I don't, I don't want to mimic other people. I think so oftentimes with imposter syndrome, we get into a place of, you know, trying to idolize other people that we feel like are doing really well. We have these Mm -hmm. reference points. And I feel like that for me became really self-destructive. And it's complicated by the fact that my reference point a lot of times was my partner Mm -hmm. (laughs) or, um, you know, board members who were sitting in Australia. And I felt like, you know, sometimes didn't their experiences or what I learned from them didn't always neatly translate to the context I was working in. So I think kind of an an emancipation from some of that is really important. Um, And and that emotional maturity comes with that. And I think that's a really, really important part of trying to dismantle that imposter syndrome. But look, I don't think I've been, I think it's it's always going to be there. And I think it's there for so many people. And I think it's important to just call it out and name it. As far as if I'm living my dream, I uh, don't want to get too emotional, but the short answer is yes, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, that warms my heart. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel really fortunate. I feel like um, I'm on a path that I'm really proud of and I feel like I can wake up every day and not only rationalize why I'm doing what I'm doing and what's led me here, but also it gives me trust in my decisions and the decisions of the future. And that's something I'm really excited about. Ah, clap emoji, sobbing emoji, heart <laughs> emoji, all the things. Sobbing emoji. <laughs> well, that sounds like the perfect note to end on. I really feel like we need like a part two and part three to this because there's, we covered so much ground, but I feel like we just opened up all these wells of different conversations <laughs> we can go into. I'd love to keep talking. I definitely think there's a lot to unpack. And um, yeah, it's been such a privilege. I always love chatting with you. So thank you so much. Yay. Likewise. If people want to get in touch with you or follow you in your work, where can they find you? Of course, you can reach me on LinkedIn. You can reach me on all that. But I'd love to just speak with you directly. So my email address is Carlin. My full name's Carlin. I go by Carly. C-A-R-L-Y-N dot James, J-A-M-E-S at thinkplace.com.au. All right. Thanks again to Carly. And thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode. As always, you can reach out to me on Instagram at Inside Out with Jane, or you can email me at hello at insideoutwithjane.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening, and I will see you online and talk to you next Tuesday.